Today's reading is Luke 5, 1 through 11. One day, Jesus was standing beside Lake Generous when the crowd pressed in around to hear God's word. Jesus saw two boats sitting by the lake. The fishermen had gone ashore and were washing their nets. Jesus boarded one of the boats, the one that belonged to Simon. Then he asked him to row out a little distance from the shore. Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon, roll out farther into the deep water and drop your nets for a catch. Simon replied, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But because you say so, I'll drop the nets. So they dropped the nets and their catch was so huge that their nets were splitting. They signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They filled both boats so full that they were about to sink. When Simon Peter saw the catch, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Leave me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Peter and those with him were overcome with amazement because of the number of fish they had caught. James and John, Zebedee's sons, were Simon's partners, and they were amazed too. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. As soon as they brought the boats to the shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest, first through fourth graders, you can head to the lobby. Everybody else can be seated. And I'm muted. Man, sorry about that. My name is Jake. Um, I used to be a tech person at Grace, but now we see why I'm not. Uh, I do some different things here at the church. I get to work with our high schoolers and just, just other various jobs. And I am so grateful to be here with you today, Grace family. Uh, show of hands, who here in the room uses Instagram? Don't be ashamed. Put them up. All right, if your hand's not up, you, you probably have an objectively better life. I'll just say it. No, not really. Um, Instagram, Instagram is great. Okay, I love Instagram. In fact, I love it so much, I love it a little bit too much. So I had to give it up for Lent. Um, and it's, it's so weird. Giving it up for Lent corresponded with me getting like three extra hours in my day. <laughs> totally, I don't think there's a connection there, but it's just interesting how these things work out, isn't it? You know, I, I use Instagram. My wife uses Instagram too. And at some point, it became very uh, clear to me that my wife and I have different approaches to Instagram. See, for those of you who don't know, uh, you, you follow people on Instagram. That means there's this little blue button that says follow, and you click it, and then until Jesus comes back, you will see every single thing that they post. That's how, that's how it works. Now, my wife, Ryan, is very generous with her follows, you might say. 
Like if someone, if, if her sister's roommate, cat's second cousin's uncle's friend has an account, she is following it. I mean, we've literally had this scenario where we, we meet someone new, and afterwards she says, I've been following them for years. And I'm like, people do that? Like you follow someone you don't even know? She's, she's very generous. I, I, on the other hand, I am very stingy with my follow button. I'm like the Ebenezer Scrooge of Instagram. People are like, follow me. No, I don't, I don't follow a lot of people. And the reason for me is because when, when an account or a person gets recommended to me, the question that I ask is, well, what makes this person so worth following? Sounds kind of mean, but it's my honest response. What makes this person so worth following? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm sure they post great pictures of, like, delicious meals, and they'll have a baby in a few years, and they'll be super cute. Like, that's all true. But what I want to know is, well, if I'm going to click that follow button, what makes this person so worth following? Today we are in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in Luke for a few months now, and we're going to be in it for a few months more, so buckle up. But that's great. Will said, yeah, because it's an awesome book. And, and as of late, what we've seen is Jesus starting his public ministry. And as uh, Pastor Will talked about last week, uh, this is a ministry of both word and deed. Word meaning he's, he's going out and, and preaching the gospel. And he's healing people, word and deed. But up until this point, it's been a solo ministry. Jesus is doing it all on his own. But today, that changes. Because in our passage today, Jesus is going to call his first disciples, specifically four men, four fishermen, Simon Peter, that's one person, two names for the price of one, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and John. He's going to call them to come and be his students, to learn from him. But not just to learn from him, to actually partner with him in doing ministry. Now this account of Jesus calling the first disciples, it ends on, on this statement that to me is haunting. Says this, when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. When these four fishermen brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed Jesus. And when it says they left everything, what it, what it means is, they literally, they left everything. This isn't like following somebody on Instagram. It means they are actually uh, physically following Jesus where he goes. It says they left their boats. If you're a fisherman and you don't have a boat, you're not going to be much of a fisherman. They leave their vocation. They leave their means of income. They leave the promise of financial stability for their family. They leave the trade that had no doubt been passed down from generation to generation. They leave the good that they offer in this collectivist society. 
Basically, they leave their identity. More than that, they leave the place that's familiar to them. They leave their hometown. They leave their homes. And with it, the people who are in their homes, their friends, their families. And that's crazy. And that brings up a question for me. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this. What makes Jesus so worth following? If these guys would leave everything to go and follow Jesus, the question is worth asking, then what is it that makes Jesus so worth following? And that's the question we're going to ask today as we go through this as we go through this passage. And we'll see three reasons why Jesus is just that worth following. So let's jump in together. We'll start in uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, The other gospel writers call this the Sea of Galilee. Has anybody been to the Sea of Galilee? Johanna can lead a second hour all about the Sea of Galilee. It's a real place, okay? This is a real thing that happened. So they're down at the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So this is a story that's about how Simon came to follow Jesus. But I think it's worth noting that before Simon ever chooses to follow Jesus, we could say that Jesus has already been following Simon. I was going to say stalking Simon, but that sounds kind of creepy. So we'll say following. Jesus has already been following Simon. In fact, if you remember from last week's passage, Jesus has already started to show up in Simon's life. He had had a little like blink and you miss it type cameo. Chapter 4, verse 38. He, Jesus, arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he, Jesus, stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. By the way, we're on page 860 in the Blue Bibles, if you want to read along. See, Jesus is already present in Simon's life. He has already been in Simon's house. He's already healed someone very near and dear to Simon. And here's what's interesting to me. Up until this point in the gospel, Jesus has only taught in synagogues, the the churchy buildings of that day. But today, he takes his ministry out on the road. In fact, he takes it to Simon's workplace. He literally invades Simon's workplace getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Jesus is moving into Simon's life. And one commentary commentary I read brought up the fact 
that this flips rabbinical practice of the time on its head. See, if you wanted to be a student, a follower of a rabbi, what you would do is basically try to get selected. You would try to live a good, outstanding life, be the best person you would be, and a rabbi would pick, uh, would sift through different candidates and pick a few of them to come and follow him. Like, I work with our high school students, and so I'm hearing about college admission processes a lot, and it's, it's very similar. Right? Do every sport you can do, not exaggerating there, do you know, every club you can do, take every AP test you can possibly take, so that when you apply, you stand out from the rest and you're chosen. Jesus does the opposite. Simon does not come to Jesus. Jesus comes to Simon. And he doesn't wait for Simon to get his act together either. We'll get there in a bit, but later Simon's going to say, Lord, I am a sinful man. I flunked math. I don't have the 4.0. Jesus goes to Simon. And this reveals the first reason why Jesus is so worth following, and it's this. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus takes the initiative. Now, this is a truth that is all throughout the Bible. If you read the Bible, it shows up page after page after page, and it's that God moves towards us first. Think of like one, uh, 1 John 4.19. It says, we love because he first loved us. God loves us before we love him. An even more startling verse. I love this verse. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. That passage is saying that before you were even you, God was already pursuing you. And like not just before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye, before there was a twinkle in the sky, God was already pursuing you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus takes the initiative. And that's not just like a cool theological idea that we can sit around and talk about. It actually changes how we live. Two isms come to mind that get impacted. The first one is moralism. The second is evangelism. Let's take moralism. Moralism is this idea that my worth is dependent on how well I perform. And then I take that and I extend it to my relationship with God. So basically, God wants nothing to do with me unless I'm doing enough good stuff and not doing too much bad stuff. That's what moralism is. And that's kind of, again, how the rabbinical practice works. Yeah, make yourself a worthy candidate, and then you can come and follow me. Now, don't get me wrong. God 100% calls us to good works and a life of holiness. And a lack of those things indicates a lack of love for God. 
Right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And at the same time, God's love for you was never dependent on that. Before you did anything, God was already pursuing you. And if we have that mindset, what that does is we realize we're not performing to get God's love. We perform because we're loved by God. We don't have to live in this constant state of fear that I'll never measure up. No, you won't. I will never be enough. No, you won't. And that's okay, because that's never what mattered to God. God's love for you is what takes, makes him take the initiative. This also impacts the other ism, evangelism. I know we hear evangelism and we're like, it's like the E word in church, right? We're like, please don't say it, because it's scary. It's scary, this, this idea that I'm supposed to go and tell my friend about Jesus. I think a lot of us, if we were honest, what we would say is, I don't know the first word to say. What if Jesus is already speaking? What if Jesus has already started moving in the person's life who he's put on your heart? What if before you ever take the initiative, Jesus already has? What if he's not saying, hey, come take this massive boulder and try to start it rolling? No, what if it's already rolling and he's just asking you to come and move it along with him? See, the wonderful truth about Jesus taking the initiative is it means we're stepping into something that's already happening. And so when we say like, hey, invite your friends, invite your family to Easter, guys, it's not because we think our Easter service is some magical one and done, you know, everything to all people. It won't be. But we say that with the assumption that God's already moving in people's lives. And this can just be the next step in that process. Why is Jesus so worth following? Because Jesus takes the initiative towards us, towards the world. Let's move on. So at this point in the story, everything kind of changes a little bit. And if I was picturing this like a stage play, Jesus and, and Peter, Simon Peter, would be um, center stage on the boat, but the crowd would suddenly fade into the darkness. The sermon that Jesus preached fades out. The spotlight now is on these two men, Jesus and Simon. Look at it with me, verse 4. And when he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, there's no like marker in the Greek text to show uh, annoyance, but I think it's pretty clear Peter's a little bit annoyed here. Sorry, I keep flip-flopping back. Simon Peter, Simon's a little bit annoyed here. In fact, I love the ESV, <laughs> how they do it. It says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, exclamation point. This dude's frustrated. And Jesus' request, to be fair, is very frustrating. I mean, when the story starts, Simon is washing his nets. That means he's done for the day. Shop is closed. 
open sign off. This dude just wants to go home, hopefully there's some leftovers in the fridge that he can heat up, go to bed, and then do it again. He's done. Not only that, Jesus seems to know nothing about fishing. Jesus gives Peter terrible fishing advice. Because a fisherman like Simon would know, you don't fish during the day. You fish at night. Simon didn't use like a fishing rod. They had these giant nets. And fish are pretty stupid. Sorry if you have any fish lovers out there. But fish are kind of stupid. And so if you cast the net in the day, they'll see it and won't swim into it. You have to fish at night. And so here comes this rabbi walking along. Hey, it's broad daylight. Let's go fishing. Simon's like, bro, great rabbi, great healer. Leave the fishing to me. Stay in your lane, Jesus. It's annoying. Not only that, Jesus just seems completely unaware of where Peter is actually at in this moment. Because, see, Simon Peter says it, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Fishing's not a hobby for Simon Peter. It's his livelihood. So to catch nothing actually meant something. It meant there are financial implications to that. The good that he offers his society, he doesn't have. He's going home with empty nets. I mean, maybe if he had had a great catch the night before, he would have been like, you know what, God's been good. You're a good rabbi. Let's go out and fish, sure. No, no, he's annoyed. Jesus, I just want to get home. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed, enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Don't miss what's going on here. Their professional fishing equipment, made to hold as many fish as possible, cannot contain the catch that Jesus provides. They are overwhelmed with what Jesus provides in this moment. And I think it begs the question, so who knew better here? The experienced fisherman or Jesus? Who knew better here? The guy who was so tired, so worn out, had spent his whole life prepping for this, or the rabbi who shows up and says, go let down your nets for a catch? This reveals the second reason why Jesus is so worth following, and it's this. Jesus knows best. Jesus knows best. Growing up, if my parents told me to do something or not do something, and I questioned them, they had this phrase they would always say, and to this day, it still kind of triggers me, makes my blood boil a little bit. They would say, Jacob, Jacob, first-time obedience. In essence, son, you are a child. We are your parents, the adults. 
and we love you so much. We want nothing but the best for you. And so if we're telling you to do something, trust that it's the best thing for you. First time obedience. Mommy and daddy know best. And all the parents in the room said, amen. And all the kids said, we're going to a different church next week. First time obedience. Mommy and daddy know best. Here's the thing. My, my mom and dad are great people. They often do know best. Um, but they're still sinful, imperfect people. They don't always know best. But for Simon, the person standing in front of him is the sinless king of the universe. The God who made the atoms in the fish that he just caught. Do you think that person knows best? Yes. Simon could have chose to follow his own wisdom, his own expertise, his own emotion in that moment, and he goes home with empty nets. Or he listens to Jesus, and he gets such a big catch, he doesn't even know what to do with it. Jesus knows best. In Grace Long Beach, he still knows best. And that's important for us to remember. And let's just name it. It's hard sometimes. Because sometimes Jesus says things that don't line up with common sense. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other one. Don't worry about tomorrow. Do God's work today Trust that he's got tomorrow taken care of. Don't be anxious. That one gets me. Don't store up wealth. It will rot. It won't give you what you're looking for. That's not common sense. Jesus knows best. Here's the other thing. Jesus will say things that go against what our culture affirms to be good, and true. And I, I don't think I, <laughs> there's no verse in the Bible, I think, that says that more clearly. And I believe it's, it's 1 Corinthians. It says this, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If there's any message that our culture is sending louder than anything else right now, it's this, you are your own. And whatever you say for you goes. Whatever you want to do with your body, whatever you want to put into your body, whatever comes out with your body, whatever you do, that's up to you because you are your own. And don't let anybody tell you differently. If they do, you just say, get out of my way, you problematic person, canceled. I'm my own. Jesus says, no. If you've followed me, you're mine. And we hear that, and it's like, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. Somebody can't say that to me, but it's good news. And here's why. Because Jesus knows best. The person who's claimed you is the person who formed you in your mother's womb. The person who's claimed you is the person who knows how many hairs you have on your head. 
do you know how many hairs you have on your head? Pastor Will does. <laughs> Sorry. You won't see me up here again for a long time. <laughs> we don't. We don't know that about ourselves. What if God knows you better than you know you? The God who has called you, who has claimed you for himself, has said this plan for your life. I want you to have life and life to the full. Is that what you want? The God who's claimed you has said, here's what I want to produce in you as a person. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. No TED Talk, no self-help guru can help produce all of those things. Jesus can. Because Jesus knows best. And that's what makes Jesus so worth following. One more thing. So Peter sees all this happening around him. Simon Peter's like, whoa, this is crazy. And, and, and you can kind of see it dawns on him what just happened. Verse 8, it says, but when Simon Peter saw it, this catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And it seems kind of like a weird response, right? Because uh, if this is me, I'd be saying, hey, thank you, Jesus. Same time tomorrow, let's keep this going. But Simon actually does something that's very normal. Um, I don't have time to go to the passages, but if you were, you were to look at Moses or Isaiah or John later on in the book of Revelation, when people who are sinful come into the presence of the one who is sinless, Suddenly, they're very aware of their sinfulness. Peter realizes, whoa, I am not where I belong. Get away from me, Jesus. We don't belong together. And you know what? There's nothing in the text that would indicate that Simon is like necessarily more or less sinful than anybody else. That's not the point. What matters is Simon's right. He is a sinful man. Because that's not a Simon problem, that's a human problem. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And here's the scary thing, is Simon's naming that in the presence of the one being in the universe who has the absolute right to judge him for it. Jesus has the absolute right to say, Simon, you're right. I have given a way that the world is meant to work, a way that will bring life and fullness and peace. And you, along with all people, say, no, we've got a better plan. And you graffiti all over my perfect creation. You're condemned. Grace Long Beach, God has every right to say that to us because it's true. We have disobeyed the all-knowing God of the universe. That's what sin is. And God has every right to say, you're in trouble for that. 
And Simon names that truth in front of this God. And what does Jesus say to him? Verse 10, do not be afraid. Simon, don't be afraid. Jesus does not condemn Peter. He does not condemn Simon Peter. Simon is vulnerable, humble. He names his mistakes, his sin, in the presence of the holy God of the universe. And the God looks at him in the eyes and says, don't be afraid. I haven't come to condemn you. And in fact, more than that, it's not just that Jesus hasn't come to condemn Peter. He's come to commission Peter. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Kind of a weird way to say that. Some some translations, fishing for people. The point is this, Simon, up until now, your life has looked like catching fish for the purpose of killing them. I want to up the ante a little bit. From now on, you're going to be catching people for the purpose of saving them. For giving them the life that only I can offer. And this reveals the third thing that makes Jesus just so worth following. And it's that he doesn't condemn. He commissions Jesus doesn't condemn us. He commissions us. It it reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm not joking when I say I can quote this movie like verbatim. It's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Just a horrible but beautiful, complicated cinematic cinematic masterpiece. Uh, The final scene in the movie. Every kid who has been invited to the Chocolate Factory blew it. All of them disobeyed the rules that Willy Wonka laid out in writing when they walked in the door. And as such, none of them stay at the end. They're all kicked out. And Willy Wonka says, you know what? I I basically have saved them from themselves. I've I've restored some of the bad things that they did. But regardless, they're just going to go on and live their horrible lives. None of them are repentant. Except for one person. Charlie. Now, Charlie's the protagonist, but he still messes up. He disobeyed the rules, and he knows it. And in this great scene at the end of the movie, after he realized, I've blown it, I don't deserve this, he walks up and he puts on Willy Wonka's desk the everlasting gobstopper, which is like this amazing new candy that was a gift for the kids because they visited But Charlie realizes, no, I've blown it. I don't deserve this. Here you go, Mr. Wonka. Puts it on his desk and goes to leave. And one of my favorite moments in any movie ever, you see Willy Wonka's hand slowly close on the candy. And he says, so shines a good deed in a weary world. He wheels around in his chair. Charlie, you've done it. Charlie's like, what did I do? 
Willy Wonka goes on to tell him, that was exactly what I was looking for. In essence, somebody who would realize their mistakes and follow my plan. And he tells Charlie, not only am I going to give you the lifetime supply of chocolate, no, Charlie, I'm giving you the factory. And if that's not a picture of what happens in this passage, I don't know what is. We come to God and we say, God, I have messed up. I've blown it. I am not worthy of this. And God says, you're not condemned. And more than not being condemned, you're commissioned. I have a plan for your life. It's not just that I'm here to excuse you. I'm here to use you. You are going to be used for my kingdom to spread the truth of who I am. Jesus doesn't condemn He commissions. And so the question then is, well, what do we do? How do we respond to that? Two things. Confess and cast your nets. Confession, that's another kind of like word we don't want to say in church all the time because the assumption is confession leads to guilt. Well, if I name my sin, then I'm, I'm admitting I messed up, and then I'm going to be guilty. But in the Bible, with our God, confession leads to the removal of guilt. Scripture says, confess your sins because God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See, if we don't confess like Peter did, what we're doing is we're keeping ourselves from hearing the one thing that we so desperately want to hear. Don't be afraid. And Grace, I can only assume, even as I look at my own life, that there are some of us who just feel burdened by sin. Maybe it's something we did. Maybe it's something we are doing. The words we've spoken or not spoken, the thoughts we've had, the things we've done with our bodies, the substances we've partaken, whatever it is, there are ways that we mess up. And we're in relationship with a God who says, I'm not going to condemn you. Come to me, repent, and experience the freedom that comes with knowing I haven't come to condemn you, I've come to commission you. Confess. And second, cast your nets. Jesus calls a fisherman to follow him. This isn't just for pastors and missionaries. Jesus calls fishermen and students and teachers and coaches and businessmen, accountants, fry cooks, therapists, counselors, social workers, artists, filmmakers, dancers, stay-at-home moms and dads, grandmas, grandpas, nurses, doctors, lawyers, pilots, mechanics, and whatever you are, you're called. So cast your net. He hasn't brought you into a relationship so you can sit there and be in fear. No, experience freedom and go out, live into your commission. Cast your net. Because Jesus is already at work and he wants to use you. Jesus is so worth following because he doesn't condemn commissions. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
You know why they left everything and followed Jesus? Because Jesus is just that worth following. Thanks be to God. Worship band, you can come on up. We're going to go um, into a time of response now. And uh, two, two different ways to respond. One of them is just simply worship. That's what we have waiting for us in all eternity, so that's an appropriate thing to do now, is to worship the God who is so worth following. But also we want to give a space for prayer. And I know for most of us here, we are already followers of Jesus, which is awesome. But sometimes we can lose these reasons why Jesus is so worth following. And so we want to give this as a space just to reclaim those truths. And so if you need to reclaim a reason for your life why Jesus is so worth following, um, either turn to a neighbor, ask them to pray with you over it, or ask our prayer team. And prayer team, we can have you stand over wherever you are. Stand in this corner over here. And maybe it's needing to reclaim the fact that, um, that Jesus has moved towards you before you've done anything. You don't earn his love. Maybe you need to reclaim the fact that Jesus knows what's best for your life. So you're going to give up something, a way that you've been thinking, because he actually knows better. Or maybe it's just simply reclaiming the fact that you're not condemned. You're forgiven. And God wants to use you. And you know what? Maybe there are some of us here who don't yet follow Jesus. And you're seeing this passage and you're thinking, yeah, I actually agree. Jesus is so worth following. And I want to follow him. And if that's you, awesome. There is no better choice that you could make. And so if that's something you feel compelled to do, again, turn to someone next to you, talk to our prayer team. They'll walk you through what that means and we'll pray with you about it. And there's no pressure to do it in this moment. There's nothing magical about this room. But if that's something God's put on your heart, don't just let it go. Because our Jesus is just so worth following.